0: They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job.
1: We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Mannix.
2: He's employed by Sports Illustrated.
3: The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. you have a problem with it, build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh,
1: thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix.
3: All right, Rich Kleiman is here. He's the co-founder of 35 Ventures, Kevin Durant's business partner. And if I'm following social media right, Rich, you are also a aspiring sports radio broadcaster. Are you doing sports radio this week in New York?
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I am. I've been doing a lot of it. I wouldn't say I'm an aspiring uh, sports radio broadcaster. However, I enjoy conversation. I enjoy talking and I grew up listening to sports radio like I was that guy. Like I used to call in when I was 12, 13 years old after Nick <laughs> games. So I enjoy it. And, and you know, for me, I think it's important, especially in today's climate more than ever, To if you are confident in doing it, to be out on the front lines um, talking about your business and talking about um, the endeavors that you're you're taking on and the, and the shows you have coming out. And then in terms of the boardroom, I've really – like made it my purpose to be on the front lines promoting that and and making sure people realize that the platform has many different verticals. And so, yeah, I mean, you'll hear me on the radio quite a bit, at least during this kind of quarantine. It's become my quarantine hobby, I think.
3: All right. Well, let me ask you about that because I was like you. I mean, we're around the same age. I I was like you in Boston where I would like, I would fax in my sports radio takes to Boston sports radio when I was too young to get them to answer the phone or like put me <laughs> on the air. I would fax in my takes. And then when I did call in, it'd be like, uh, God. How that do you point, fax a take? Hey, like a take. you like, I wrote one down and I printed it out and I faxed it into the studio because oh, they God. would read it. God. They would read the faxes. Like this was before like the text line was a thing. They would read oh, like wow. faxes over the air. So I was just like that, man. I mean, cool. just, it was it was fun to uh, to engage with Sports Talk Radio. Let me ask you this though, as a New Yorker, were you a Francesa guy?
2: Uh, no, not really. I wasn't not a Francesa guy. Like I listened to Mike and the Mad Dog, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. I'm not one of those people that ever had like one guy. I actually have a friend I've met later on in life who is fanatical. Who's like has his name, you know, Mark from Manhattan, one of those mm-hmm. guys that like, oh, yeah. Francesa's known him twenty years, and those guys g- will go to war for him. Um, I I never got. I mean. I used to love how much he loved Parcells and the Giants. Like, I, I got into that. And then when I, as I started getting a little older, I realized that, like, um, it, he was almost like – because then when Parcells went to the Cowboys, it was just like he I, – I couldn't get down with the fact that he was still so pro Parcells at that point. I mean, the whole thing just threw me off a bit. But in general, I just was like – I liked – you remember Susan Waldman? Ever, yeah, I heard remember her? Susan Waldman. Sure. Yeah, she was like an awesome, like Nick games after the Nick games. She was great. I used to love, um, the forgot the guy's name that was at night. Um, I used to listen to this guy they had on the fan at night too. But I mean, I kind of listened to everything. But I also was like avid ESPN, had the ticker going would like wait, you know, it was crazy. Cause like I used to, everyone knows I love Mark Jackson. I used to like try to wait up to see the scores of his Clippers games after he was traded to the Clippers. And then I was just so obsessed with the NBA. I wanted to see anything going on with the late night games. And obviously there was no package. So, you know, like the bottom of the screen, they would have the scores come around and it didn't happen continuously. It would update like every 20 minutes. I would just sit there and wait for those scores to come around. So like anything I could consume sports as a kid, I, consumed
3: it so what's it like then for you as somebody now pretty heavily involved in the nba to kind of as a knicks fan growing up i mean what's it been like to watch them the last 20 years
2: um well i haven't watched as much the last 20 years (laughs) I i keep up with them but it's it's weird because it's like um i watched i watched the knicks as a kid Uh, An unhealthy amount. I mean, I it's when I talk to Mark Jackson uh, as a friend, and I catch up with him. I remind him of games. Like he'll ask me questions, like, "What year was it when so and so was on the team?" I'll be like, "That was your second year in '88. Patino's second year." Like I, my my knowledge of what happened from like 1986 till about 2000 is unmatched. Mm This it's like represents a period in my life where. It was, I hadn't, I, I didn't have a wife at that time. I obviously had no kids at that time. It was like the Knicks were my life. Um, and then in the second part of my life in the two thousand until now, I hold such a, a, a like a warm place in, in my life for the Knicks. I love them. I love the franchise. I love the garden. I love um, the memories I have there, but I just never got behind a particular team or player the way I did as a kid and I'm starting to think now that I got older that that's actually what happens when you're a kid and you're a sports fan you just kind of grow out of that obsession period mm. um, but you know I still root for him I still watch them I really like you know Steve Mills was a friend of mine I was I would keep in touch with him every so often um, and now I'm excited that Leon's there um, but you know it just hasn't been the same like so it's not like with the Giants with the Football, You know, it's I think football fandom is different. It's like every year it's just like renewed excitement and you just kind of have this condensed like 16 games and you go after your team. It almost feels like when you're like a fan of your college. But in the NBA, it's just it's just been different. It's just been different the last 20 years.
3: So as a Knicks fan, does the direction they're going now with Leon Rose and and sort of the overhaul they're attempting that that does that excite you?
2: Well, it excites me because I like Leon and he's a friend of mine and I'm excited for him and I think he'll do a great job. I wouldn't necessarily call, I I don't know if it's an overhaul yet because it's kind of just been like an overhaul, right? Like the last few years. Um, I think that what Leon has now is is a great canvas of some good young talent, um, some cap space, some potential for even more cap space, a slew of draft picks and it's like he's getting this dream job and then you're getting this incredible bit of ammunition to now activate your dream job. So I'm excited to watch that as like a fan of the business as well and a fan of sports and basketball. And then obviously I want him to succeed and I want the Knicks to succeed. And by the way, the Nets will succeed Mm -hmm. and having the Knicks be successful while the Nets are successful will be fought in the city. You know, I think everyone would want that.
3: No, I completely agree with you. I mean, I I think it's not mutually exclusive where you have to have one of those franchises be successful and the other not. I think having, I mean, look, we're seeing it in LA. I mean, the Clippers and the Lakers, both being elite teams uh, makes basketball better. And I think it would be the same thing if the Knicks and the Nets can, can get, can both be on that, that pretty high level. You, you mentioned your, yeah. you mentioned your relationship with Mark Jackson, your friendship with Mark Jackson. I mean, do you think Mark Jackson will get another coaching job?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm optimistic that he will. Um, I think that it's not a sure thing. I think that for some odd reason, um, I don't know what it is, to be honest with you, because he had a successful three years. Um, He had some things, I guess, said about him in the media post his time there. And We're all now looking back at that. You realize that while some things in the media are true and accurate, we've all been a bit desynthesized to like what we hear. And I think all of that stuff has kind of gone away. I think the biggest thing that happened was this, like the stars being aligned of like not such great press coming out of the separation and then them winning the championship the next year and them, winning 73 games a year after that, whereas more emphasis should have been put on the job that he did and played his part leading up to that. Now, I do think that people like Bob Myers and the players and Steve Kerr and, and even ownership, they did at times publicly like really make a point of saying that like Mark played a big part in it, the players too, obviously, especially. Um, but I don't know if it was just that like sentiment that went around the league Because it feels like it was one of those things that were like he'd become a a rumored candidate. And for whatever reason, whether it was in New York or I think there was a few other cities that his name was mentioned in, you always would kind of read the description about him. And someone would say, like, great leader. Players will run through a wall for him player knows the game but a lot of baggage comes with it it's like what baggage comes with it you know what i mean sometimes these things just kind of like get put out in the atmosphere and it's just like a narrative that keeps going with the story so i do think that what he has benefited from is time and time has now i think diminished a bit of that talk and he is like a candidate that's mentioned quite a bit and then you see within like the social media world there's always a real um support for for him to be a candidate so I'm hoping that uh, all of those kind of like elements will add up to him getting a shot. He deserves one. He's a great coach. He's a great leader. Um, I, You know, and, and then for me personally, it would be fun to watch him get another opportunity. Uh, yeah, I so mean, I'm confident.
3: yeah, I mean, he is – I mean, look, you – you, when you're a 53 win coach of, of a team, you would think that regardless of the circumstances, that another opportunity would come up. It's just, I mean, there's gotta be something there, right. That, you know, it's been six years since golden state and, you know, unless something happens this summer, it'll be another off season that goes by without Mark getting another job.
2: Yeah. And I think he, I mean, I know he's at peace with it and I know that, um, there's a very good chance, like you said, that this summer will come and go and he won't, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, listen, I, I think that it's time and, and I've heard of, I've heard bits of it and, and started to hear now that the Warriors' previous dynasty, and they may start a new one again next year, but let's just say what it was for the last six, seven years has ended. Um, I think there's an appreciation for the full body of work of what that run was. And there's no way to not acknowledge that the foundation that was built, he played a part in. So I think that hopefully that comes a bit more into the forefront than all the other kind of chatter and narrative that comes with it. Um, And I think that ultimately it will and should. Um, And I think it, you know, for like everybody, you kind of also take all the pluses and minuses from your previous experience and then you implement them into your next one. So I think he'll even do that much better in his next job. Um, So I think any team can do it.
3: Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens whenever whenever I guess the off season actually starts, Rich, because I don't at this point I don't know what that date could actually look like with with the way the calendar is shaking out. What what's your sense and and your read from from your position about, you know, I guess how the NBA should proceed with all this. Um they're clearly doing the right thing now with allowing the medical evidence to to dictate policy. Um, you know, my understanding is that, you know, come May 1st or in the, in the weeks following May 1st, you know, there'll be a reevaluation of where they are and just how logistically possible it is. I know they're considering, you know, Las Vegas as a potential site to hold the playoffs, but what what do you think of where the NBA is with all this? And, and I guess, how should they proceed?
2: Well, I mean, I think like, it feels like Adam as much as any commissioner, if not more has a really incredible read uh, of what to do and when to do it and what the right thing to do is and i know that he's as intelligent as they come so you, he does the due diligence and make sure that he covers every angle and in this instance there's so many different angles and so much information and so much unknown that it's going to be hard to make a decision in any way prematurely you know you, you can't kind of like try it out this isn't one of those things where you're like you know what Let's just give it a shot because giving it a shot without checking all the science and all the facts and getting all the clearance is uh, is putting lives at risk. So I think that obviously he'll have to wait till the next big kind of benchmark within our country, Um, at least in New York. um, I know I can speak that that's kind of the benchmark and I feels like that's what the whole country is is kind of using as theirs. what is like the end of April, May 1st. Clearly, there won't be fans. Um, I don't think there's any chance there'll be fans. I think we all know that. And I think that you have to start having some kind of clock ticking on when this could potentially affect next season, how you're going to manage the draft and the virtual draft process. Also, I would think taking into account that the players that are going to be coming into the NBA next season, will they have to now be waiting from February, March, whenever their season's ended, all the way till December, and all of those things are going to have to be put into this like decision-making process that I believe somehow the NBA um, will figure out a way. I do really think so. I think two weeks ago I, w- I was asked that a few times and I felt like this was unsalvageable. Um, but I do think the NBA is going to try its hardest to put something out there to finish the season and declare a champion. What I would say, though, is that In these conversations, sometimes I think what's lost is that the players are also living the same thing that we're living right now. Mm -hmm. And while we all would want them to be back as soon as possible for the kind of uh, symbol that that would reflect to us, like the beginning of of our society, I think the same way sports, when it shut down, really represented, wow, like this is the world is shutting down more so than anything. And then maybe sports reopening would give us some bit of that confidence. um, And a little bit more of a positive outlook, but we got to remember that these players can't be the people responsible for that, for the country. You know what I mean? So there has to be this kind of feeling that, that psychologically as well, that everybody feels like this is the right thing to do and, and are comfortable going back and playing in this condensed season. You know, I think that if I was a betting man, and I am, that I would <laughs> bet that there will be some return of play um, at some point this summer. But I think it'll just be a very unconventional um, and condensed version of what the season was and in an attempt to kind of decide a champion. But I don't know. It's a, I, I'm, I think it's a tough, 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 tough situation that all these sports are in. But the NBA... And the NHL having an end to the season, I think, is even more complicated than MLS and MLB and obviously NFL, which is later on when you have to start a season.
3: Yeah, and you're right about the what the players and their ability to to come back at a high level. I mean, I saw Jason Tatum on TV this week saying you hadn't picked up a basketball in over a month. I've talked to players and and I know you have as well that that are just i mean they're literally doing zoom classes right now it's it's actually been shocking to me rich to to realize just how many players don't have like baskets at their house like a, a lot of them yeah. don't don't have baskets at their house now some of them couldn't be doing much anyway because of the weather but i mean whether it's a peloton bike and there's a couple other things that guys have picked up that they've been telling me about i mean there's it's going to take a while i would think for guys to get back into shape uh, to be able to play nba level basketball games and the danger is of course if you're not in that kind of shape injuries happen i mean that's how you know achilles get torn acl's yeah, know, bad yeah. injuries you got to be careful about that right
2: first well, of course and 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 think about it. even if they had a court and i think some of them may have outdoor baskets as you saw from like the horse competition you would have to have an indoor gym somebody there to work with you to in any way mimic like the speed and activity that you'd have to train at to get back to be in the M to play in the NBA. Um, And these guys have never really had to have that because they've always had gyms to go to, and this is unprecedented. So, I mean, they've got to be so far behind now. These guys could pick it up as quick, obviously as anyone They're the top of the top and there would have to be some kind of training camp um, or you know, obviously like back to play two week period or whatever, four weeks. And i it sounds like they're trying to figure out with team trainers and medical staffs what that would entail. But it's a good point because, you know, I, this is, this isn't even like coming back from the summer. This is unheard of because they're really doing nothing. Now they're working out and they're getting their cardio in and uh, I'm sure they're doing strength training and some of them have different things at their disposal, but I mean this is this is going to be less work than they even have coming back over the summer where they're getting their games fine tuned for training camp. So, you know, I think that's a whole other thing that you have to add into this too because how does that affect next season um god forbid these players do get hurt. Um and then also like you take too much time away, you're coming back it's not the same season. And it's just not, you know, you you're not you're not coming back 2 months later and and picking back up with like the seeds the way they were and the players the way they were and You know, when you put all that into it, it actually makes me question what I just said. You know, like it Mm. maybe is still unsalvageable. You know, it seems like there are just maybe too many things to consider that possibly thinking proactively about how to come back next year with the new safety measures in place. And unfortunately, just having this be a lost season may end up being the more practical response.
3: That horse competition. I don't know about that. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't. I don't know if that's that's good TV. Doing cell phone videos of guys playing horse outdoors not not my favorite thing. But the um the the one thing you mentioned about you know the the postseason one thing I've I've been thinking about is at some point you you have to start wondering if it crowns a legitimate champion, right? Like the NBA wants to come back and have I think it would be its seventy fourth champion this year, but if the Playoffs are so abbreviated, then, I mean, how legitimate is that championship? I mean, I remember back in, what was it, 2000 when, you know, Phil Jackson, I think, was the first one to say it, kind of scoffed at the Spurs championship during that lockout shortened season uh, back then. And and that's with a full playoffs that they had there. If you wind up doing some kind of shortened uh, best of five, best of three in some rounds because you're trying to squeeze stuff into like a six week window, at some point, you know, that has to take away from the credibility of the championship doesn't it i mean at some point you have to say all right you might be able to unofficially crown a champion but it's always going to have an asterisk next to it
2: yeah well well i mean i think the credibility asterisk thing is really made up more by all of us right as mm-hmm. fans as media um i think that less about the fact that it's condensed in terms of format and that's why like i totally disagree with phil jackson and and in no way to, do I feel like there was an asterisk because the season started – what was it, 50 games they played or 65 games or 62 games that season? Yeah, I think it was 50 um, in,
3: that, in that one. It was a little 50, bit shorter. Right? That's the
2: when, one, yeah. when the Knicks came in, as an 8 seed to yeah. play the Spurs. Um, I think the difference with this one would be that was a lockout and then they started a regular season the right way. They just did it with a shorter amount of games. The reason why this one would be so odd, though, in time, I believe that these asterisks really mean nothing. And, you know, as time goes on, the champ is the champ. And however, you found it that way. My concern would be that I don't even know if it's the same season. Like you're taking two months off, and all of a sudden, you have teams that were seeded in certain ways based on how they were playing in the beginning of March. But just like season to season, nothing's the same this is a whole nother time period that you took off and took off in the most isolated way in mankind. And then, and, and people are losing people. I mean, people are, I mean, people are losing people in the NBA that are close to them. You know, I mean, what Carl Towns, my God,
3: Yeah.
2: you know, I can't even, my heart breaks thinking about what he went through and what he's going through in his family. And, you know, a security guard that worked for Kevin and DeMarcus cousins and Draymond green, he passed away. I mean, there there's people that have lost people in these times. They're human beings. So like, for me, it's like, it's not even going to be the same season. So, you know, I, when I, when I start even again, as the more we talk about, it, I just, I, I cannot wrap my head around how it can happen.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a big time challenge for all the reasons you, you kind of articulated there. Um, in the interim, you know, content is king, right? Like we talked about a horse and what ESPN is trying to do there. You see a lot of old uh, old shows, old uh, games that are being played on every network as people try to give an audience something to watch. Uh, with some of the work that you've been doing with 35 Ventures, I guess first, tell me how you started that that company. Obviously, it's you and it's Kevin Durant and, um, you know, and then forming that company together. But what's the the genesis? What was the genesis of all that?
2: Um, I mean, I, as as far back as I could remember, I, I wanted to have my own company and I wanted to build something that I could be known for and that could leave a mark and a legacy and that my kids could be a part of. It took me on a really weird journey through the music business. Um, and then I had an incredible opportunity to work for Jay-Z and Rock Nation for a long time. And for a while, I really was cool with, maybe not ever having my own business and just being a part of that incredible movement. But when I was fortunate to move over to sports and work with Kevin, we had a great time at rock. Um, But ultimately Kevin shared the same desires as me. And in some ways his was even more rampant at that time, which was he wanted his own business and his own enterprise and something he could leave to his kids and grandkids and his own legacy. So about four years ago when we started it, we really started it very, you know, very cautiously, very uh, methodically and really tried to figure out what exactly it is that we wanted, what it was that Kevin was passionate about, what it was that we both felt like we could do and do our way and not have to compromise. And at first it started in really focusing on Kevin's brand and rebuilding his foundation. We started focusing on um, really like diving into his Nike business and understanding the trajectory that that business was under was in so that post-career we could continue to maintain this, um, KD Nike business, you know, a la Jordan probably never to that level, but in the same mold. And then we started investing in technology and that started kind of sparking a ton of different ideas. And when we started investing in technology, we started to collaborate more with our portfolio companies we started to create content uh, along with some of our companies. And then at that point, we launched Kevin's YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel was because we had been watching these creators that were building robust business just from their YouTube platform. So we figured if we did that for Kevin, that we could have similar success. And we started to. Um, but at that point, we realized that being in the media business and creating our own storytelling on a wider distribution level was something that we did really want to do. So we started uh, selling documentaries. We created a scripted series that Apple bought. Um, And then about two years ago, the boardroom was born out of this feeling that if I was a 14 year old kid, I would have wanted a firsthand look at everything that we were working on, that LeBron was working on, Tom Brady, Steph, Kobe, Michael Jordan, and the deals being made and the CEOs that we were in the room with and the sneaker deals. So we, Sold the show to ESPN, but we always maintained ownership of the brand because we wanted to ultimately create our own platform that was a voice to this entire generation and that most sports business platforms are B2B and we wanted to create something that was B2C. Now, today, the boardroom has its own native distribution through all of our properties. It has the show on ESPN. We're launching a big podcast network, newsletter. So the boardroom platform is pretty much like the top priority for the company, but we still have a handful of projects at different uh, distribution partners. We still invest in technology. We still obviously manage Kevin's brand and we've put that all under one roof. We just took a beautiful new office space in New York. There's about 17 of us all very like-minded and entrepreneurial and, and it's pretty exciting. And we're kind of, um, you know, trying to stay as busy and active and continue to tell stories and create during this time period. I think it's been a challenge for everybody, but we've kind of taken the challenge and I think in a lot of ways started to create our identity even more so.
3: Yeah. And specifically with the the boardroom, I mean, you've done some shows involving a lot of players, CJ McCollum, Danilo Gallinari have been on the show, uh, media members, some guy named Woj who I've vaguely heard of. Um <laughs> The like, what's the goal of each one of those shows? I mean, how are you? What are you trying to do differently right. than what you see on traditional TV?
2: Um, well, I think right now, like the way it started was that we were trying to really give an inside look at what the sports business was now and what it was for the players and for the deal makers, and less about like the concession deals and some of the uh, more corporate news that, like I said, Sports Business Journal may cover. That then kind of evolved into this like one-on-one interview format where we were giving each athlete or executive or pioneer within sport an opportunity to talk about their journey and their trajectory within the business world and what they had accomplished and how they had used sport to now create this business off the court. And that may be Um, what they're doing philanthropically. That may be what they're doing from an enterprise perspective. It may be in terms of this WNBA series we're working on, women that are juggling being mothers and also having their own business and being in the WNBA. What it's now starting to become is a much more broad conversation just about sports, the culture, and the lifestyle. And obviously business plays a very big part of that. But during this time period, we're really just having much more Um, broad conversation, but we'll always tie it back to what it is that they're doing from the business perspective. So we're not just going to talk stats and games and highlights and championships and who's the best player and ranking players and um, why they did this and free agency or that. But if we do, we'll talk much more holistically about the decision and what goes into those decision-making process and who their team is around them. And you know what it means when you get traded or you, become a free agent and you move and you move your family so we kind of look at that whole side of it but you know as the brand's grown i think we're doing it through the boardroom lens but we're broadening the conversation now so like with woge we we did talk about the state of the nba now but we wanted to hear a little bit about just like how we became woge as well and i think that for kids that just can never get enough of consuming sports and and what goes on off the field and off the court to be able to get a little bit of a lesson a practical lesson in layman's terms from these guys and just how they got there. I know as a kid I really would have appreciated it, and I think that's what drove us to want to do this.
3: Well, as Woj would tell you, his career took off when he started the vertical, hired Chris Mannix, and everything just sort of was yeah. meteoric right from there. I mean, I've, I've listened to him say that before many times. In, uh, in I tried profession.
2: to push them to put a graphic over everything he was saying <laughs> and the whole time to just say, this is all lies. It was all Chris Mannix, but he <laughs> See, wouldn't do it. They I wouldn't mean, do it.
1: He'll get there eventually. He'll come around to it. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field.
0: is uncanny usa
3: he says somebody's in the house and i screamed
0: listen
1: to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare
0: there's no distance too far for the perfect trip hi checking in for or the perfect table hey where are you
3: How do you you know, I'm curious because, you know, a guy like Kevin and a guy like LeBron, for example, just two, both guys who have started their own kind of platforms, media platforms that are highly successful, widely viewed by a lot of people. How do you balance, you know, as Kevin's manager, kind of the the relationship, the coexistence between sort of the internal media, for lack of a better phrase, and the traditional media that's out there that you might want Kevin to do stuff with?
2: That's a really good question because I, challenge, I I pay very special close attention to that because I never, ever want to forget the job that I started and the job that allowed me to build this business, which is his manager. And I never will ask him to compromise what he wants to do or what's best for him for what's best for the business. So you'll never – that's why you just don't see him on the boardroom very or you just don't see him pushing and promoting our content all the time. He's the force clearly behind everything we do in business. But it's one of the reasons why I've been out there more doing sports radio and doing a lot of stuff like this, because I think it's important to have a lot of different voices behind the brands that we're building. However, if Kevin's uncomfortable with something, or if we're starting something for the company that he doesn't feel any connection to believe in, encourage, endorse, um, meaning internally, I can't do it, you know? And, and if I don't feel the excitement level from him when I call him to update him on all the things we're doing, then it means it's something we can't be doing because I can't take my eyes off that job. And when he wants to speak or do something, if our platform's not the right place for him to announce something or do something, then we won't do it because we're in this, you know, A, for the long game when it comes to our company. So we're not trying to break any news or break news all the time. Um, but also I got to make sure that Kevin knows that when I'm wearing my manager hat, that my kind of focus is on what's best for him and what's best for him only. Um, and he knows that, and he knows that because there's times and he's beyond the fact that he sees it when you work together for eight years, we've known each other at 12, the trust factor is, is, is so strong. Um, that like it's goes without saying so we don't you know we don't even have to check ourselves on it but i personally make sure that i'm always focused on that now there's cases like his free agency this summer where i can put to him and say listen one way or the other all these guys are going to get it if we don't maximize the opportunity to put this out from our platform two seconds before everyone else has it then we're just not being good businessmen and as your manager, I can tell you that if I wasn't even involved in your company, I would tell you that that's the right thing to do. And of course he listens and believes and, and he wanted to anyway, but you know, sometimes it is the best thing for this company, but sometimes it's not.
3: How much along those lines, Rich, how much did you learn over the years? I guess, watching the evolution of LeBron and how he, he handled stuff like this. Not that they're the same, but we, we saw LeBron make what was, you know, widely viewed as a, big mistake in in the decision to doing something that was, you know, quite frankly, was thought pretty well of and in that essay he wrote in Sports Illustrated with Lee Jenkins. Uh, how much do you, do you learn from, from watching, you know, a player like LeBron kind of go through those machinations?
2: I mean, we learn everything from them. I, you know, listen, LeBron, Maverick, Rich, Randy, they were trailblazers in many ways, but one of the biggest ways was creating, an entire business with multi multiple different verticals and different an agency, a uh, media company, a marketing company, all while LeBron was in the middle of his career or in the beginning middle of his career, all of the parts of his career. And it used to be that you were preparing for post-career. He was the first to say, no, I'm going to do them both at the highest possible level because I can't. And in that way, obviously, he's inspired all of us, I think, across all sports. Um, because even Michael Jordan, he was the biggest brand ambassador and had the biggest sneaker deals and was the, you know, the, the most popular person in the world. But he didn't have the many different elements to his business, or at least it wasn't known publicly what he was doing. And at the times were just different. There mm. weren't the ability to control your own media that way. LeBron was the first to do that. So in every way he's inspired us. Now, I do think that like we have done it our way and we've created things that are true and authentic to us. And there's a different approach. We take to different things. And obviously Kevin and LeBron are different, just period. Um, But in terms of them being the first one to always dip their toe in the water, um, whether it was via free agency and, and having to make an announcement and whether it was received well or not received well, always doing it and not being afraid to do it. I think that he's opened up so many doors. Um, but I think we, we are cognizant of that. We also know that we have to do things our way. So, um, you know, it's kind of like it's been a gift to be able to see it. And then there's a part of us, though, that still want to make sure that we blaze our own trails as well.
3: You know, you mentioned that you know when it comes to, to thirty five ventures and the business side of it, there are some projects Kevin is excited about, some that, you know, maybe not. One thing one project it seems he's pretty excited about is this documentary on Stefan Marbury. You're also an executive producer of the Doc. And you know, I first heard of this, I was honestly surprised, Rich, that it hadn't been done yet. I mean, this it's such you know, it's such fertile ground, Stefan Marbury his upbringing from Coney Island up the ranks, you know, to the NBA and all the, the ups and downs he had there. I mean, can you just take me into kind of the, the process of getting involved with Marbury and why this idea appealed to you?
2: Yeah. yeah. And just quickly, there's nothing he that we do that he's not excited about. It's that if he's not excited, we just don't do right, it because right. I need to feel his buy-in. I agree with you. Like growing up in New York, um, Stefan Marbury was a superhero and through everything he went through, if you were a real hoop fan in New York city, you felt for him. You didn't want to see what was happening with him and Larry Brown and see what was happening with him um, post Nick's career. And then when you saw him in China, you felt this incredible feeling of excitement and satisfaction, even if you didn't know him. And Being inside the world of basketball, you felt like this story almost had been told because you saw, I think, Mark Spears did a cool thing on him in China once. um, And then I always kept up with him, and I spoke to him every so often through the years. But when the movie was brought to us, they had made the doc already, and it was time now to bring it to the world. And when they showed it to us, I was like, Stefan Marbury, doc, I'm in, before I even (laughs) saw it. Just in my mind. When I watched it, I watched it with about 10 people from my office, most of them under 30 with really no understanding of who he was, maybe outside of just his name a little bit. And it was incredible. And the way Cootie and Chike brought this to life was so, um, was just so special that I didn't know what Kevin's kind of feeling or relationship was with Stefan. I knew he would want to do it, I, I felt pretty confident he'd want to do it. But when I called him and talked to him about it, then sent him the doc to hear just the connection that he felt to him, the respect he had for him as a player, uh, how even some of the interviews that he had listened to through the years had really connected with him. Once we both were as excited as I was when I first watched it, it was like we were just chomping at the bit to get as close to this story and be as big a part of it and help out as much as we can. And it's been so cool to see – the basketball community as well as just people in general respond to this and just give him his due and give him his positive um, kind of respect that he deserves because he made mistakes maybe he says and, and some of them are just what growing up and all of us go through he had to do this on a big stage I'm sure there's things he would have done differently and I'm sure there's things that he did the right way and people misunderstood him but the fact that he was always such a good person. You've never heard anyone say he was a bad person. He comes from a great family and it sucks when really good people get a really bad rap, almost like the way I was talking about Mark before. So the fact that this film was able to just open people's eyes to just how incredible and special he is and the film is, it's just been really rewarding for me professionally and personally.
3: You know, one of the great basketball unknowns of like the last 30 years is what would have happened if Steph stayed in Minnesota. Like, you know, that was a team on the rise. You know, looked like they had you know, Kevin Kevin Garnett and Steph had great on court chemistry. And then three years, you know, Steph decided, you know, he wanted to to go back home to do something else. I mean that that's I don't know about you, but as a as a for you as a New Yorker watching that, I mean that I I will always wonder what that team could have been because of how great Kevin Garnett was, yeah. how great Stefan Marbury was. That was a team that could have won championships, you know, if it was built out right.
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, I thought about that. They were also like, you know, the the, the West was getting really tough. Um, obviously, Shaq and Kobe were there, um, but I guess a few years later, Kobe went to Miami. But the the thing was, and you're right; they could have been pretty special. I don't think. That's I, I'm not I don't I'm not putting them in the same class um, as like Russ, Kevin and James. You know, it wasn't like that. Mm. Um, but I think in 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 it's funny because Steph Vaughn, what I've realized, really was doing a lot of things before other people were doing them. He had a TV show in like 2006. I don't know if you knew that. He had like his own show, his own platform. He was interviewing guests. He did an interview with Kobe once, he did a bunch Spike Lee. He had the Starberry brand that, you know, was very uh, controversial, but at one point incredibly successful. He also left a team at a young age with another great player where they were winning. And he left because he didn't want to be in Minnesota anymore. And he did what was best for him and advocated for himself. And as much as the fans were upset and the league was upset, he did what was best for himself. Now that's the norm. That's what, that's what everybody does. And we would have expected him to leave if it was today. We would have said, yeah, well, he's in Minnesota, but he'll probably leave in a few years and want to go back home and play for a big market. And then ultimately, KG wanted to leave too. Um, but it was interesting to see all that because when I really thought about it, I was like, wow, Stefan was really doing a lot of things before other people were doing it and really didn't ever get recognized for that, whether it was good or bad. You know, advocating for himself and... And doing things on social media, even remember if you remember that whole like, kind of uh, like well documented moment he had on social media, that was like again that's what happens every day now. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's I think the team was really good. I personally don't know if that was like because who was the rest of that team? They had Wally Zerbiak, but that didn't end up being um,
3: no. It wasn't it wasn't a good team at that point. It's just they were so young that. You
2: know, yeah, the two of them were so young and so good. If you have
3: two guys there. that are that good, that you can, there's no guarantees. Like you could have a front office screw it up and not get the right guys around him. But if you have those two pieces in place, and you get that third guy, like you mentioned, Kevin Russ and James. Like if you could find your James uh, with that group, uh, you know, they were could have been as good as anybody. Like they were just so good. And like yeah, I don't know, like no. and Steph kind of you know I don't know if going home you know, in both situations in New Jersey, like he, he blossomed individually in New Jersey, but they didn't make the playoffs when he was there. And then, and then everything in New York was just a mess from, from start to finish that, you know, I, 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 you know, looking back on hindsight's easy to do now, it it was probably one of the worst things for him as a player to, to go back into, into that environment.
2: Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, Phoenix, he Phoenix, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, in Phoenix, they had a, They had a monster team, though. Think about that team. That was – I mean, it was the same team Nash had. It was just younger. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, ultimately, like, individually, he definitely had tremendous success. Team-wise, there were glimpses in New Jersey. Everyone was hurt when he was playing. But, yeah, I mean, he never really had the team success that he had there. So, you know, ultimately, I think that's probably the biggest question about whether – if he, if I wonder, you know, I never even asked him that I, I, I had a deep conversation with him about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago about all the different stops along the way and didn't even really go back to ask if like he regretted everything in Minnesota, but I doubt it because, you know, I do think that it's not focused on enough how much quality of life is important for these guys, you know, and if you're just, and it's no different than it would be for you and I, if mm-hmm. you just weren't comfortable in a particular job. Um, I mean, in a particular city where our job was, we just probably wouldn't want to be there, no matter how much money or success we could have, you know? So I don't know, but you're right. That is one of those teams that they will probably an incredible 30 for 30 on one day.
3: Yeah, but look, I, I never begrudge player movement because all of us have done it, just to your point. Like I moved from Boston to New York because there was opportunity and I thought as a 20-something, I'd have more fun living in New York City. Like I, I can't... I'll never fault another 20-something from having the same idea or even 30-somethings from wanting a change of scenery in their life. I do wonder, though, Rich, the Starberry sneakers, why did the Starberry sneakers fail? Do you, do you have any theories on all that? Because in theory, it was a good idea, like a $15 sneaker from a player at that point. I think it was 06, 07 when he was at the, the peak of his individual power, if you will, or playing really good basketball. Uh, but they never... It just never caught on in the way I thought it might catch on.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, well, it did catch on. I think it's it just, it's, I mean, think about it. I mean, just you're going against these billion dollar businesses that yeah. are selling shoes in a completely different price point. Um, and it also, in a lot of ways, I think basketball sneakers were something that was a bit aspirational, you know, that n- needed to maintain this aspirational type um kind of sentiment to it and you know i think ultimately while it was the gesture was incredible and i think kids really did embrace it and it makes all the sense in the world i just think it was a really tough business to sustain yourself in um when you're just going up against companies the size of nike adidas things like that
3: yeah yeah i gave them a try back then I, i was there's a Stephen barry's right down the street from the si office in new york and i picked up uh a couple of pairs. Just I had a pair too. Yeah. I had a pair too. <laughs> uh, Rich, I appreciate it, man. Always good to uh, to catch up with you. I hope uh, I hope Kevin's doing well. You know, I know uh, you know one of the first guys in the NBA to test positive for coronavirus. I hope he's he's holding up these days.
2: Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. He is. I will tell him that you send your regards, and um, you know he was fortunate that he was asymptomatic throughout and. Um, is now you know clear and free of it Um, but obviously quarantined like the rest of us still so how how is he Um, with
3: the how is he with the Achilles at this point where what's the the latest with his physical health
2: I mean he's he's doing good I mean he's you know his he's exactly where he's supposed to be Um, and it's been almost a year since the injury but Um, you know, he's been able to maintain his rehabilitation during this period, not to the same extent, I think the first few weeks, but you know, he's continuing to get stronger and keep building and playing and, you know, things have slowed down tremendously for everyone, just like if he wasn't rehabbing back, but, um, this hasn't thrown him off, um, the, you know, the path to coming back to play.
3: Do you think, I mean, one of the questions about summer basketball is guys overcoming injuries to play. Has there been any thought of Kevin coming back to play if it was July or August?
2: I I promise you, Kevin and I have not talked about that. And I know it sounds crazy, (laughs) but my my assumption has been uh, that that wasn't very realistic. And I've just kind of, you know, I just don't, it's just not, I, I know when the time will be to have that conversation. And it just hasn't been that time. And it just doesn't feel like it's needed.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that'd also be asking a lot, too, to come back into a pressure situation right off the bat with an injury like that. That's, that's yeah, a lot that's to ask for. that has got a bright future.
2: That's what I mean about unrealistic. It's just when, you know, I, it's, it, I haven't even thought to ask him because it just seems so unrealistic.
3: Mm -hmm. no question well rich i appreciate it man um i look forward to listening to you on new york radio in the coming ways for (laughs) rich in the hamptons dialing in from the radio show oh
2: man i won't be (laughs) saying that that won't go over well
3: (laughs) appreciate your time rich good luck with everything
2: all right thanks chris